Hello and welcome back to ED GovCast. I'm Lee Barneycott and with me is Gareth Davis. Thanks for joining us back here for part two of ED GovCast. Uh, we're a couple of ED consultants from the UK and in ED GovCast we reflect on some of the latest trends that have cropped up uh, through our local governance processes. We got lots of great feedback on our first episode, so we thought we'd come back again and do it all again. We've got some fantastic topics this month, highlights including life-threatening asthma, a case of central venous sinus thrombosis, neutropenic sepsis management. So we can't wait to crack on with this episode. So here we go with this month's ED GovCast. So this month... My favourite part, again, the clinical cases. We're going to crack on with those. So this month, we've had a fantastic case presented by our colleague, Helen Bates, that Lee's going to crack on and tell us about. Thanks, Gareth. Yeah, this was, uh, this was a case of a 39-year-old uh, who presented with a week-long history of headache and lethargy. She did have some new word-finding difficulties when she attended, so that associated with a headache uh, led to her being seen by our stroke nurse specialist and a CT head being performed. Interestingly, in her past medical history, she had had a PE postpartum, but that was 13 years ago. Can you tell what the diagnosis is yet, Gareth? I don't know. It's giving me a headache already thinking about it. So, uh, yeah, so this lady had a headache. She'd had it for a week uh, and she'd had a previous history of uh, venous thromboembolism. She had a head scan done and it showed features suggestive of a left transverse sinus thrombosis extending into her left sigmoid sinus. After her scan... She actually had a seizure in the emergency department. So we've got lots of hallmark features here of uh, venous sinus thrombosis disease causing headaches, which is a pretty rare presentation, isn't it, Gareth? Certainly, prior to COVID, I've never even seen a case myself. But during the COVID pandemic, we did see quite a few patients presenting, certainly also the risk being that they post-COVID vaccination. But for me, the take-home really is, is generally a female, can be male, obviously, which can be a thunderclap, uh, associated with some form of neurology. So in this case, there was some expressive dysphasia. And there, there usually are risk factors for a patient to have a venous thromboembolism. For example, previous VTE or being on the contraceptive pill. So that brings us really back into the world of headaches. Yeah, I think you've got to have a system, haven't you, really, for um, trying to work out the differential diagnosis for patients presenting with headaches. You know, you've got your primary and your secondary causes, haven't you? Is that a system that you use, Gareth? I just see to them all. No, absolutely. Primary uh, and secondary. I think, it's, I think it's interesting you say that, Gareth, because certainly if we look back at that venous sinus thrombosis case, uh, that's a, that is a pretty rare presentation. Uh, I've not seen that many during my career, and I certainly remember it as one of those cases that you have to have quite a high index of suspicion for. If you jump back in this patient's presentation she arrived with a headache with focal neurological signs so she got a ct and the ct was a helpful safety net here to capture things wasn't it however in general like you mentioned earlier when i think about headaches and certainly when i'm talking to uh, junior colleagues about headaches i always classify into primary and secondary causes so your primaries really are the the patients that we don't really worry too much about we just want to sort of tell them what what's going on and offer some advice about how to get it sorted. So these patients, for example, are your migraine headaches, your tension headaches, sometimes even cluster headaches and various other musculoskeletal type headaches. Yeah, they tend to 
uh, have quite clear discrete syndromes don't they associated with them those primary headaches you know if you've got a presence of uh, a full range of features to fit with that syndrome um, a cluster headache is a classic isn't it really then it really is a clinical diagnosis and then moving on to the secondary headaches which which are these are the patients we we obviously do worry about so some of these things may be obvious so Patients who, for example, who've had a head injury, then we're going to be concerned about uh, intracranial bleeding. So your extradurals, your subdurals and uh, intracranial hemorrhages. Obviously, patients presenting with um, headache and fever, you're going to be concerned around meningitis. And then any infections, for example, intracranial uh, infections like abscesses can also present However, these these are generally quite rare. Of course, there we've spoken mostly about the neurological causes for headaches, but there are other extracranial causes of headaches, aren't there, Gareth? And we need to remember things like the ocular problems, the big one, of course, being acute angle closure glaucoma. And then, of course, we've got inflammatory conditions as well, like temporal arteritis. And I think the takeaway there is remember that there are conditions outside of the neurological system that can cause headaches as well. Well, thanks very much for that short summary, Gareth. That was like a dose of paracetamol. My headache has eased now. Thank you. So moving on to the next case. This month, I actually presented a case of a young man who unfortunately presented to the emergency department post-cardiac arrest, having had a a life-threatening asthma attack. He presented to the emergency department after 40 minutes of resuscitation with an output. The paramedics and the HEMS team had intubated and ventilated him and also performed bilateral thoracostomies. So obviously a very sad case, but a good example of how to manage asthma. So let's go back to basics, Lee. How do we manage asthma? Yeah, thanks, Gareth. Well, there are some excellent BTS and sign guidelines out there that describe very clearly how to assess and manage patients presenting with acute asthma. Of course, the first step is to make a severity assessment. Does your patient have clinical features suggestive of moderate, severe or life-threatening asthma, remembering that just a single feature um, of life-threatening asthma makes it life-threatening asthma and likewise for severe asthma or moderate asthma. So do check out those BTS guidelines. The next step, of course, is therapy. The BTS guidelines describe very clearly what therapy to give. And the two main therapies, of course, are oxygen and bronchodilation therapy. So oxygen is required if oxygen saturations are less than 94 to 98%. And the mainstay of bronchodilation therapy, the longer term mainstay, of course, is steroid therapy. And it's important to get steroids into the patient as early as possible because we know it can take several hours for the steroids to work. But in the interim, it's necessary to use bronchodilator medications. So beta-2 agonists such as salbutamol and ipotropium bromide is also indicated. Now, if your patient is not responding to -to back-to-back bronchodilator agents for the severe cases, then you're going to need to move on to intravenous bronchodilator agents such as magnesium sulfate. Now, the guidance really then starts to thin out as to what to do next. And typically then we're finding that we've got patients with more severe exacerbations of asthma. They may well have features suggestive of life-threatening asthma. And the BTS guideline is quite clear that these patients need support from intensive care. But I think it's important to recognise that intensive care therapy starts and can be delivered in the resuscitation room. And it's important that we we train clinicians from whatever background to deliver the right therapies. So what are our options once we get to this stage, Gareth? Well, firstly, I need to ask myself, am I treating asthma or not? So think about differentials. 
So the obvious differential for me would be an anaphylaxis. So patients with anaphylaxis can present exactly like an asthma attack. So they certainly can be wheezing. They can be tachycardic, et cetera. So just have a, have a think about, is there something else going on? The next few questions I need to ask is, do I need to test them? For example, have a chest X-ray or an arterial blood gas. If you're not hypoxic and you're not that unwell, you don't need an arterial blood gas. And I think that's often um, misunderstood by junior team members. So moving on to the critically unwell patients. So as Lee said, you know, the standard care will be nebulized bronchodilators, steroids, and things like magnesium would be the next step. So intravenous magnesium sulfate. Moving on from that, then we're going to have to think about administering some of these agents intravenously, for example, salbutamol. I know that's used quite a lot in children, Lee. Yeah, that's right, Gareth. It is favoured in children, but there is also a role probably for intravenous salbutamol use in adults with life-threatening asthma. One of the tensions sometimes, though, of course, is the lactic acidosis that can be generated by salbutamol. And there's always a concern for salbutamol toxicity. And of course, if you generate a lactic acidosis, then you will increase your respiratory requirements. So one does have to be slightly careful, but I probably would look to use bolus um, intravenous salbutamol, uh, 250 microgram increments at once I was at that stage. Now, you mentioned differentials for bronchospasm, one of which, of course, would be anaphylaxis, which leads nicely into other bronchodilator agents. The next agent, of course, being adrenaline. Adrenaline is an excellent bronchodilator. It needs to be used very carefully in the hands of uh, clinicians who are familiar with its use. Then uh, it certainly does have a role for the patient with life-threatening asthma. I think the next step that we then move on to the, the other Pharmacological agents that might have a role would include agents like ketamine, but this would typically be linked with other therapies that were needing to be provided to these patients with life-threatening asthma at this stage. So really, uh, by this stage, we would be thinking about and, and in fact, implementing uh, ventilatory support strategies. Now, we will avoid at all costs ventilating patients with asthma. Um, because they're very, very difficult to ventilate. However, if it is required, then I would strongly recommend ketamine um, as part of the induction program, um, as part of the induction regime rather, because it does have bronchodilator uh, properties. Some approaches suggested uh, out there for how one might anaesthetize and then deliver positive pressure ventilation to a, a life-threatening asthmatic patient, including things like delayed sequence induction approaches to support adequate pre-oxygenation of the patient. From my point of view as a, as a consultant, as an ED doctor, um, these patients should be managed with teams rather than team so I will be inviting my colleagues from intensive care, anesthetics, uh, and then there needs to be some clinical consensus in the room how to manage this patient. Are there any other ventilation strategies we could use? For example, non-invasive ventilation. As I mentioned, these cases need to be managed from a multidisciplinary team to, to get the best outcome for them. So don't, don't isolate yourself in the room with that patient. Leave your ego at the door and get some friends in. I think that's an excellent point. Well made, Gareth. Well, we've covered quite a lot of ground there in that segment, so I think it would be useful just to summarise very very quickly, know your BTS guidelines, know how to severity assess a patient, and most patients with asthma will respond to the standard therapies that are evidence-based and outlined in the BTS guidelines. As soon as you have a patient with life-threatening asthma, this needs a team approach and you need to involve colleagues from critical care and work collaboratively with critical care colleagues. And finally, and particularly for um, the more senior members of the audience, it's important to develop a strategy in your head for what rescue agents you're going to use to help 
break the bronchospasm in these patients with life-threatening asthma. So one of the things that came up in the discussion uh, about that last case of asthma in our governance meeting was how members of the team use different cognitive aid memoirs to support their management of critically unwell patients. And we thought it would be useful just to share some of our tips and tricks for this, because I think it's important as a resuscitation room clinician to develop a strategy for how you can support decision making in the critically unwell patient. I'm a big fan of apps, Lee. I don't know about you. I've got loads of apps on my phone, but uh, a lot of them are actually uh, medical apps. So the one that was mentioned in this meeting today was the UK Resuscitation Council uh, Guidelines app, which has all your adult ALS algorithms as, as well as your paediatric ALS algorithms. So anaphylaxis, for example, and asthma. So for example, anaphylaxis is right in there. So and in also includes the refractory anaphylaxis guidelines as well. Yeah, Gareth, I think apps have a, a key role to play in all of this. Um, in some ways, though, we benefit from luxury, don't we? Because there are so many apps and guidelines out there now, sometimes one can get a bit lost. And so I think we have to develop our hierarchy as individual clinicians for how we access these aid memoirs. The first step, I think, of course, is to use your brain. So we have all learned a lot at medical school and throughout our postgraduate training and we'll all have a strategy for how we manage patients who are acutely unwell in that acute phase. If we compare this to the way that pilots work with their checklists when they are involved in an emergency, they have a suite of immediate actions on their checklist. And the expectation is that they know what those immediate actions are, i.e. they hold those actions in their brain. They memorise those actions. And so for the patient with asthma, we we'll have some immediate actions that we do once we've recognised asthma. We will give some bronchodilator therapy, we will give some steroids, and then we will reassess that patient's response. Once we get into a more challenging case, then it can be useful to start to use some sort of cognitive aid memoir. So in the asthma example, the BTS guidance. In the anaphylaxis example, the Resource Council app. Now, one of the one of the problems with, or one of the challenges, I should say, with so many apps is, is maintaining some sort of order so that you have that information accessible to you at the time that you need it. So I have organized uh, several important apps to me on my phone under EM Clinical Care, and I know that I can access the Resource Council guideline apps. I know that I can access the SORT guidelines for paediatric emergencies, for instance. Beyond that, though, the third thing that we sometimes need is a paper copy of algorithms because we know that technology fails sometimes and people were talking about technological access problems during the meeting today, weren't they? And one of the ways that we mitigate that in our department uh, is well evidence for paediatrics, isn't it, where we have a whole suite of um, critical care guidelines available uh, for the, the common range of critical care presentations in paediatrics. Now, we certainly don't have things perfect in our service, um, and I don't think I have a perfect strategy, but I think the takeaway point for uh, all of us as clinicians is to develop a strategy for how you, you will use uh, cognitive aid memoirs to support your management of critically unwell patients. I certainly, I do that quite a lot. Um, and, and I would message to sort of the junior members of the team, don't be afraid to look things up. For example, head injuries. I'm always looking up at the nice head injury guidelines. I've passed exams on this, Lee. I should know when I do a CT for a child or an adult, but I still look them up. I think that's safe care, uh, just to remind yourself the indications. And I always encourage the juniors to do that when they ask me about when to do a CT.
Another clinical case that was discussed this month was actually a breast case. So this was a, a young woman uh, sort of in her 30s, uh, presented with breast pain and swelling. Was assessed in the emergency department, uh, didn't have a fever, looked quite well from the end of the bed. The GP had started some oral antibiotics the previous day. There was a little bit of redness, no fluctuant swelling, so no signs at that point that there was abscess formation. So we didn't think at the point we needed to, to refer for an incision or drainage. The idea was to continue antibiotics. It was discharged, was given appropriate safety netting, and went to return to the department. The patient symptoms did worsen over the next 48 hours, getting a sight of blistering. It was reviewed by the breast team at that point. A decision to perform an incision and drainage was made with some debridement of, of skin necrosis. So the breast case was a good example of how to manage these patients in the emergency department. It was actually presented by our colleague, Jen Joyner. Then towards the end of the presentation, our fabulous colleague, uh, Sarah Noble, gave us some of her top tips how to manage these patients. I think it's very badly taught. And I think there's a few top tips that we need to know about this because we will see people with infections in their breasts. We usually just give them antibiotics, tell them to go away, give them some safety netting. But there's some simple things that we can also do to make things better. And they are things around um, sort of hot, like any abscess, having warmth uh, around something is going to help draw out the abscess. Because the bottom line is the pathophysiology is that you've got a tube that's blocked and therefore a collection of milk that then gets infected and therefore forms an abscess. So you want to try and get that out. So there's warmth and compresses and things um, that you can do in baths and in the shower. There are two types of massage they need to be doing. So any lumps and bumps need a circular massage to ease it up. And then, particularly when they're feeding, they need to start to stroke it with four fingers, not poking and prodding because that hurts. Four fingers, stroke it towards the nipple because then you've done the massage to ease it up a bit. You've got a bit of warmth on it. And then if you ease it towards the nipple, then you're more likely to get that infection out. And the trouble is that just giving them antibiotics isn't going to sort this out. And I know people don't like talking about, you know, pussy breasts, uh, but it's really important that we do that extra information as well, because without getting rid of the abscess, we're not going to get rid of the infection. And then they will end up with incision and drainage when they don't necessarily need it. Well, thank you, Sarah Noble. Just before we finish on this, just to mention that if you look, if you work in our trust and you know who you are, then we do have a local uh, breast care pathway, which is accessible on the internet and also on the ELAS app. So the next part of the meeting today were some good examples of how to learn from instance. So one of the key things in governance is understanding the data. And that data, a lot of that data comes from incident reporting. So there were two little topics that were brought up today that came out of incident reporting. Well, the first one, of course, related to neutropenic sepsis. And this has been a recurrent issue, hasn't it, in our service? And there's been, there's been some really good quality improvement project activity looking at this area over the years. And I, and I would say that has generally improved things. But as part of our continuous surveillance, unfortunately, we are still documenting episodes of delayed antibiotic administration to patients with suspected neutropenic sepsis. And, and that's what was presented today, wasn't it? We don't have all of the solutions, but the key takeaway is if you have a patient with suspected neutropenic sepsis, they need to be assessed in our initial assessment area and they need to get their antibiotics administered promptly. So that doesn't mean a prescription done promptly. It means antibiotics administered to the patient promptly. So if you're a prescriber, you need to ensure that your prescription for antibiotics actually get into the patient 
as soon as possible. Yeah, that's right, Lee. Certainly over the last 18 months, we've done a lot of work, as you said, to try and get this done, uh, get these patients treated timely. So some really good things that we do, for example, we, we get the acute oncology service to give us a call on the consultant phone. So we know that they're, they're coming in. And as, as Lee touched on, uh, we need to get these patients into our rapid assessment areas and seen by a senior emergency physician early on so we could administer um, timely sepsis care. Another case that popped up this month was a patient who presented with a shoulder complaint, uh, had a shoulder x-ray, and that was reported as normal. However, there was some suspicion that there was evidence of, of possible lung cancer on the plain film in the lung field. So the, the key point there is just to have a look at all of your x-ray, not just the point that you're interested in. Well, I tell you what, Lee, this podcast is rapidly developing this month. We've covered lots of things so far. We've had asthmatics. We've had headaches. I tell you what, though, my headache is gone now after that reassuring chat about headaches. Well, that's probably reassuring that you had a primary headache, not a secondary headache, Lee. Thank goodness for that, G-Dog. Thank goodness for that. Well, let's celebrate some of the successes in the department this month because we had a couple of the team go up to the ARCM annual scientific conference, oh, didn't was, we? Was that in Scotland? That's why I didn't go. It was a bit far away. Yeah, so the folks who went up to Glasgow, uh, of course, we had a winner, didn't we? We had Megan. Yeah, so uh, so Megan, Rachel, Paul and, uh, and Tara Brown, one of the paediatric consultants, uh, presented a poster on uh, how care of young patients presented with paracetamol overdose has been improved in the emergency department. They did such a good job. They won the Association of Paediatric Emergency Medicine Prize. So well done to Megan and the team. Then. Well done, Megan. Absolutely great that she's representing our department in such a positive way. Yeah. And to all of you out there doing some quality improvement projects, don't forget to celebrate the work that you're doing. Lots of work goes into these QI projects, doesn't it, Gareth? And it's important to spread the message of what you've learned from your project. And a great way to do that is posters at national conferences, the local QI celebrations. Coming up, of course, in December will be the uh, Wessex Emergency Medicine Innovation and Excellence Awards, the WEMIAs. And that will be another great place to celebrate some of the work. That's Who came up on. with WEMIAs? I, I don't know at all. Anyhow, anyhow, so look out for the WEMIAs. And then, of course, Shan, Rachel and Gabriella also presented uh, their quality improvement project looking at the uh, management, uh, management of paediatric forearm fracture manipulations in, in the ED. Yeah, great. I mean, Shan is one of our specialty doctors at our trust and he did a fantastic job at presenting this uh, at the conference. Um, certainly sort of paediatric forearm fractures, as we know, are really common. Um, and it's important that we know what we're doing from an evidence point of view when we're managing these patients. I think this followed on, didn't it, from uh, the great paediatric orthopaedic research that's been coming out of Oxford recently, things like the fourth study, and there's a whole range of other studies. Uh, and in fact, one of those is ongoing in the department at the moment. Yeah, it's fantastic to see um, some colleagues presenting at a national level. It really is. And of course, they're, they're, they're putting into practice uh, recent research in emergency care, uh, lots of the Lots of the fracture research has, is coming out of the Oxford, uh, the Nuffield Research Unit up there, um, the full study. And at the moment, of course, we've got draft three running, looking at uh, distal radius fractures in adults. Um, and this is great translational research, really, isn't it, Gareth? Yeah, I just love the names of these things. Like force, that is. Use the force. Use the force. 
that's obviously you, you're going straight into Star Wars then. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you absolutely need to have um, a, a snappy name for your research study these days. Well, I often use the force when I cannulate in Rat Bay. And finally, I think we need to uh, celebrate the award for Mohammed Asaf for his excellent work in paediatrics, uh, a paediatric ACE award from the paediatric service um, for his timely assessment of uh, of one of the young people that presented to the department earlier this month. So well done. So some of the other things that was mentioned in the paediatric section our meeting today was, for example, uh, management of pain in children. So it's important to note that obviously we can start off with our paracetamol ibuprofen for our sort of mild pain, but moving on to sort of moderate, I think it's often forgot about that we can potentially use oral morphine. So oromorph for these children, uh, 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilo. That's well recognized within the, within the evidence to use that. Clearly, if we're moving on to severe pain, for example, with patients with trauma, um, so those broken wrists that we were talking about, then intranasal fentanyl is, is, is fantastic to use. Clearly, we can use IV morphine if we need to as well. Yeah, these are fundamentals of emergency care, aren't they? And we should never, never forget to address people's pain promptly and adequately. Right, Gareth, housekeeping. We've finally got the internet working after that disaster of a governance meeting earlier. It's not much of a disaster, was it, Lee? Well, yeah. I think it's a bit harsh. I'm not sure for those of us who are watching from other rooms, Gareth. Anyhow, anyhow, housekeeping. So we want to make sure that we cover content on this podcast that works for all of you, not just for me, not just for you, G-Dog. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if you tell us what you want covered. So please get in touch drop us a line. You've got the QR code. Send us in your comments. Send us in your thoughts about topics you'd like to see covered, and we'll do our best to to do that. Cheers. Well, we've rapidly come towards the end of this month's podcast. I think I've had about five cups of coffee. Hey, but they taste good, Lee. Seriously, a lot of work goes into this, and uh, I think a p- particular shout out to Gareth. Really, he spent an inordinate amount of time editing last month's podcast and sorting out the tech. And in fact, he's locked me in a soundproof room for this month's podcast. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love spending the next three days listening to your voice, Lee. Cheers, to you, dog. So that's the end. I hope you, like we say, we should get a new episode out every month. Keep an eye out for it. This has been Ed Govcast. Mm-hmm.